They called her Moses, though they had no idea who she was. She would rescue her people from the hand of slavery and bring them to the promised land. The slave catchers assumed that she was a a strong, burly man, but she was just a frail slave girl, couldn't read, couldn't write, but she could rescue people from the hand of slavery. She herself escaped from a plantation in Maryland, and after she got past the Mason-Dixon line, she was so burdened for her family that she decided to go back and rescue her family members and her friends from slavery in Maryland. Going back some 13 times, rescuing 70 people from the hand of slavery. And once the Civil War started, she became a cook and then became a nurse, a spy for the Union Army. And she was actually the first woman to lead an armed expedition in war for the United States. The raid had come to be ferry where 700 enslaved people were freed under her command. You probably have figured out who I'm talking about, Harriet Tubman, an American legend and an icon, someone who had a strong faith in our Savior. I'm excited to have a conversation with her someday when we meet in eternity. But she was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And her and the other conductors on the railroad, they actually had a song a spiritual that they would sing, and the lyrics went like this. It was called, Follow the Drinking Gourd. Drinking Gourd. For the old man is waiting just to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. While the riverbank makes a mighty good road, dead trees will show you the way. Left foot, peg foot, traveling on. Follow the drinking gourd. (laughs) It's probably not a phrase that we've used very often in our vocabulary, the drinking gourd. But I promise that you know exactly what it is. It's another term for the Big Dipper, the constellation in the night sky. Why would they sing, follow the drinking gourd? Well, because the two stars that form the ladle of the Big Dipper, Dubhi and and Merrick, they point towards Polaris, the North Star. And when you're in the South, when you're running for freedom from the hands of slave captors, you're, you're running at night and you're running north, following the North Star, the drinking gourd. It's pretty cool. And I've always been intrigued by the North Star because as our Earth is rotating on axis, as we're revolving around the sun, even as our galaxy is spinning, The North Star always points north. And what a cool illustration, a picture for us as people, as it seems like our world is spinning out of control, as we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, as we don't know what next week, next month is going to bring. We need that one thing that we can set our trajectory towards, that one thing that we can look at, that one thing that can be the filter by which we determine our decisions, that one thing that we look toward that can keep us focused. Well, as followers of Christ, what might that one thing be? Well, I know what our Sunday school answer is, right? Jesus! And how could that be wrong? But in our text tonight, Paul's actually a little bit more specific. The North Star for a follower of Christ is our hope of eternity. 
the treasure of being with Jesus forever. That is your North Star. That is my North Star. But we think for a moment of all of the things that we might be tempted to look toward, that we might be tempted to trust in, that we might be tempted to look at as the guidepost in our life, the thing that determines our decisions. Is it possible that comfort could be a guidepost? Is it possible that when friends come and, and they try to peer pressure you that, you know, you always take the path of least resistance, so it's really hard to say no because all we want is to be comfortable. Is it possible that a person can become your North Star? That the idea of being in a relationship with someone, uh, having this ideal future with someone, it so sets your trajectory that, that every decision that you make revolves around that person. Then when the relationship crumbles, that everything is broken. Is it possible that a politician or a political ideology can become the guidepost that leaves us either elated or depressed after election night? What is your guidepost? Could it be a job? The idea of climbing the corporate ladder, of becoming the best, of, of having the best possible job, of advancing in your field, and all of our decisions revolve around that. Could that be your guidepost? But as a follower of Christ, eternity sets our trajectory. In all of our decisions, all of the paths that we take in life can be determined by that one north star. That's exactly what Paul talks about in our passage tonight. And as Christians, we actually have an unfair advantage because we know the finish line. We know the end of the story. We know how things finish. So Paul very wisely begins with the end in mind. He paints a picture of what it's going to look like someday in eternity and then gives us some ideas on how we can allow eternity to set our trajectory. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me as I read Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What a great passage. Why don't we just zoom in on that first verse? It sounds a little bit like a conditional statement, if you've been raised with Christ. But we have to understand that in the Greek, Paul is speaking a condition of confidence. In other words, if you've been raised with Christ, which you have, or because you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Because anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We're part of God's family, and when we're part of his family, he has some expectations for us, some family rules that he expects us to follow. And that's what Paul gets at in that first verse. He says, seek the things that are above. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative command, a way that he expects us to live as followers of Christ. And in the Greek, this is actually a continuous, ongoing action. We need to continually Seek the things that are above because we've been raised with Christ. But, but what are these things that are above? Where are they? Well, Paul says that they're seated at the right hand of God where Christ is. The right hand of God is a place of prominence, a place of power, a place of authority. Paul is painting a picture of Jesus reigning as king over the heavenly kingdom. 
Because as followers of Christ, we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom while living in an earthly one. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21, where he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. As a Christ follower, our citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> in our country today, citizenship is a big deal. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but there's advantages that come with being a citizen of our country. And if you're a citizen of the United States or another country, if we're followers of Christ, we have a higher allegiance, a higher calling than our citizens of the United States. Because we are citizens of heaven. We are members of a heavenly kingdom while living in earthly kingdom. And Paul is saying that we have to align our hearts, we have to align our desires with the heavenly kingdom and not the earthly kingdom. Because those two kingdoms don't really get along. There's not too many ways in which they agree. If the heavenly kingdom is pointing towards Antarctica, then the earthly kingdom is pointed in the opposite direction. If the heavenly kingdom was pointed towards the North Star, then the earthly kingdom will be pointed towards Antarctica. Then no way do they agree. And I think we're tempted sometimes to think that we can pursue both paths, that, that we can pursue some of the things that the earthly kingdom values, at the same time pursue some of the things that the heavenly kingdom values, but they're antithetical. It's not possible. We have to make the heavenly kingdom the guidepost of our life. It must be our north star. And that's our big idea tonight. If you only remember one thing, this is what it is. Let eternity set your trajectory. Let eternity set your trajectory. These heavenly things, their attitudes, their desires, their actions that are consistent with Jesus' kingdom. And this isn't going to be easy because each one of us still battles the remnant of the flesh in our hearts at war with the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that's spinning out of control and there's hundreds of stressors. There's thousands of distractions. There's a million excuses for us to take our focus off of the North Star. And Paul knows this is going to be difficult, which is why he exhorts us, he commands us to seek heavenly things. But think of the contrast between the two kingdoms. Our earthly kingdom sets its trajectory toward selfishness. A me-first mentality. It's my way or the highway. I'm going to get my way first. But think of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom sets its trajectory towards service. Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, then you've got to be slave of all. Jesus' kingdom values service over selfishness. The earthly kingdom, it values control. Which I think is one of the reasons why our world has had a such, such a hard time with this pandemic, because it's reminded us that we don't have control. We don't know what tomorrow, next week, or next month is going to bring. But Jesus' kingdom values trust. That when we have that relationship with Christ, that he's going to take care of us. That we have the certainty of eternity with our Savior, and that we don't need to fear. Our earthly kingdom, it values pleasure. If it feels good, if it doesn't hurt anyone, then it can't be a problem. There's no moral absolutes. But think of Jesus' kingdom. He values obedience. That we don't get to make the rules. God gets to make the rules. 
and we live in obedience to him. There are so many differences between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. The earthly kingdom values material wealth and possessions and materialism, getting as much money as we possibly can because that leads to prominence and power and happiness. But that's the opposite of Jesus' kingdom, isn't it? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Then Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is getting at something fundamental of the human heart and the human condition, that the things that we invest in become the things that we value. The things that we treasure demonstrate the affections of our heart. So if you want to know, if I want to know what we value, we have to look at what we're investing in. Take a look at your last credit card bill. Take a look at your calendar. See where you're spending your time. Take a look at your screen time report from last week on your phone. Where are we investing our time? That's where we can see our priorities. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. The things that we invest in become the things that we value, become the things that we love. I appreciate the NIV's translation of this first verse, which says, set your hearts on things that are above. That gets at the nuance of the Greek word zetete in this verse. We need to value the things that Jesus values. We have to treasure the things that are going to matter in eternity. But what Paul is saying is more than just doing the right thing, we need to desire to do the right thing. The difference might be subtle, but it's significant. Significant because our desires flow from the affections of our heart. If we want to change a behavior pattern in our life, then we need to do heart surgery. The sin is just the symptom of a deeper issue in our lives. If someone tried to treat a heart condition with pain medication and might solve the symptom for a couple of weeks, but the result's going to be fatal, we need to fix the heart of the issue. I was even reminded of this yesterday as I was mowing my yard because there were some leaves I still needed to clean up that didn't get picked up by the truck. Now, you have to understand about my yard, about our yard, just about everything that you wouldn't want to grow in a yard is growing in our yard. Creeping Charlie, crabgrass, dandelions, dirt, holes from Phoebe. I mean, it's kind of a disaster. We are never going to win Scott's Yard of the Year, ever. But if I want to take care of the weeds in our yard, it doesn't work just to pluck the head of the dandelion off, does it? You've got to take care of the weeds at the root of the issue. And it's the same with sin in our life. Sin, whatever it might be, is a symptom of a deeper heart issue. When we see the fruit in our life, as we talked about a little bit last week, then we need to make a root change in our lives. We need to change our desires. (laughs) Now, how in the world do we do that? How do we change the inclinations of our heart? How do we change the things that we value? How do we change the things that we feel? Well, it's almost impossible, especially without the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think that Paul answers that question for us in verse 2 of our text. Let me read that again. Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 1, Paul talks about setting our hearts But here, he changes it a little bit, doesn't he? He says, set your 
minds on things that are above. Because what we value, what we want, what we desire, before it enters into our heart, it actually begins somewhere else, doesn't it? In our mind. The things that we think about, the things that we dwell on, become the things that we desire. If we want to see lasting change in our life, if we want eternity to be our guideposts, then we have to be so intentional with the things that we put into our minds. We might not always have control over what we desire, but we certainly have control over the things that we think about. And if you did an assessment, if I did an assessment over the things that ran through our mind in the last 24 hours, how many of those thoughts would be pleasing or unpleasing to our Savior? I think those results could be sobering, couldn't they? But over and over again in our life, we see the reality, the things that we think about become the things that we desire, which influences our behavior. So how do we let eternity set our trajectory? Well, we have to understand this progression, mind, heart, life. And that's your next couple of blanks there on your handout, mind, heart, life. The things we think about become the things that we desire, and the things that we desire become the things that we do. And I think we can see that over and over and over again in our life. If it's January, and it's negative 300 degrees outside, and all you want to do is go to the beach, the more that you think, the more that I think about going to Florida— the more likely I'm going to desire to go to Florida, which then is going to mean I'm going to swipe my credit card for some airline tickets, right? The more we think about something, the more we desire it, and that influences our behavior. The more that you think about that new car that you want to buy, the more that you desire it, the higher likelihood you are going to go spend money on it. The more that somebody thinks about their ex-girlfriend or their ex-boyfriend, the more that they either desire to be with them or that they have the desire to slap them. It's usually one or the other. The things we think about becomes the things that we desire and the things that we desire influence our actions. And that's exactly what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us not just to do the right thing, but to desire to do the right thing. And he inspects sin at the heart level. Remember what he said about adultery? As he was preaching on the Ten Commandments, he said, you know that adultery is wrong, but I tell you this, whoever looks lustfully at another person has committed adultery in their hearts. Jesus knows that the things that we think about affect our desires, influence our actions, mind, heart, life. I think that is so apparent in some of the sinful tendencies in our life. So if you want to intentionally seek heavenly things, if I want to align my heart and mind with Jesus' kingdom, then it starts by gaining control over what happens in our minds. So what consumes our thoughts? What are we allowing our minds to passively think about? We need to guard the gate of our mind. Think of an Old Testament city like Jericho with the huge fortified walls. There's really only one entrance in and out. It was the gate at the front of the city. And the citizens were wise to protect their city. They were very careful who and what they would allow in. We need to have the same sort of mentality when it comes to our minds. So what's the gate of our mind? Most certainly our eyes, probably our ears. What are we watching? What are we listening to? What are we allowing into the gate of our minds? 
Because our minds are constantly at work. We're always thinking about something, and our world and our culture is trying to fill our mind with things that are opposite of the heavenly kingdom. It's trying to reorient our desires. Think of it this way. If you have an iPhone, you might get a weekly screen time report. And every time I look at mine, I think that's not possible. I was not on my phone that long every day this week. But it reminds us that every minute we spend on our phone, we're allowing Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest and TikTok and Snapchat to reorient and change our desires. Every minute we fill our minds with Netflix and with YouTube, YouTube, we're allowing that content to begin to shape our mind, to begin to shape our desires, because the things that we think about become the things that we desire. I have another documentary recommendation. You probably think that all I do is sit at home and watch documentaries after two recommendations two weeks in a row. I don't do that. I'm not that much of a nerd. I have heard that Andrew watches one a day, but that's a different story. But here's a documentary recommendation. The Social Dilemma. If you don't believe me that social media is actively trying to reorient your desires, you should definitely check out that documentary. Maybe we need to think of it this way. Let's be practical. Are you struggling with lust in your life? What are you allowing through your mind? Who are you following on Instagram? Who are you following on Snapchat? Are the movies that you're watching, do they contain some scenes that are inappropriate? We need to guard the gate of our mind. Are you struggling with your language? Well, evaluate the media that you might be consuming or the friends that you might be hanging around with. Are you struggling with materialism? Well, how much time are you spending a day scrolling through Instagram, scrolling through Facebook? Because those companies make money by having you, having me view advertisements. And those advertisements are trying to shape us, get us to desire things that we don't currently have sold by their product. Are we struggling with materialism? Now, I don't want to hear me wrong. <laughs> Social media isn't of the devil. It might be, I don't know, it's above my pay grade. I'm not saying that TVs are evil and that we all need to trade in our iPhones, our Androids for those old Nokia brick phones. You know what I'm talking about? Those are awesome. Those things, you could drop them off a cliff and they would survive, right? But here's what I'm saying. It's a phrase that my mom would use over and over again as a kid. It's just glued to the front of my brain. Garbage in, garbage out. The things that we consume, the things that we allow our mind to think about, the things that we watch, the things that we hear, if they're not honoring to the Lord, they're going to come out somehow, some way down the road. We can't keep believing the lie that we're immune to being affected by the negative content that we consume. Maybe it's time for some of us to use the Philippians 4.8 test when it comes to our media. Here's Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, Whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's Philippians 4 8. And it can be a great tool, a great filter for us as we think about the media that we consume. Is that movie commendable? Is that conversation just? Is that video game lovely? Is that website pure? Is that book honorable? Is that friendship worthy of praise? 
it might be time for some of us to guard the gate of our mind by what we see and hear. Maybe it's time for some of us to delete some social media accounts on our phones. Maybe it's time for some of us just to take a break from social media for the next week. And if your heart sank when I made that recommendation, you should definitely consider taking some time off social media this week. Because the things that we think about become the things that we desire and it impacts the things that we do. But guarding the gate of our mind, only half of it is restricting negative content, isn't it? We need to be intentional by filling our mind with heavenly kingdom-oriented things. And it's not going to be easy, which is why Paul has to command us to do this. It's going to take some effort, but over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see our desires start to change. When we talk about filling our minds with God-oriented things, it begins with Scripture, doesn't it? I'm reminded what God commanded Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 8. The book of the law, which was for him, the Bible at that time, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. It's interesting. God didn't use the word read or skim. He used the word meditate, didn't he? That's deeper than just reading the Bible to check a box or getting through our reading plan and then forgetting five minutes later what we read. Meditate means to digest, to chew, to think, to soak on God's word and let it transform our desires. He even says in this passage, day and night. What do we think about when we wake up in the middle of the night? Is it God's word? May we be a young adult family that faithfully meditates, dwells on God's word and fills our minds with God-oriented thoughts. Music is an excellent way for us to fill our mind with God-oriented things. Listening to some good Jesus music is always a good choice to get our hearts thinking on the goodness of the gospel. Maybe we can be intentional about having real conversations with one another. Instead of talking about the weather or instead of talking about how poorly the Buccaneers and Tom Brady played last night, maybe we could ask a question like, what's God been teaching you lately? What are some prayers that God's answered in your life? What's God been up to? and have some spiritual-oriented conversations with one another to put the things of God on even one another's minds as we dwell in community. Changing our desires by reorienting our thoughts is not easy, and it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. And change is gradual. It takes time. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. But as we're consistent in guarding the gate of our minds, by the power of the Spirit, God will reorient our desires. So the big idea, let eternity set your trajectory. How do we do that? Mind, heart, life. And then Paul gives us three reasons, the why for our big idea. Let me read verse 3 from our passage where Paul says this, For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's kind of an interesting phrase. I mean, I feel kind of alive. My heart is beating. I'm pretty sure that I'm breathing, right? We know Paul's not being literal. He's being metaphorical. He's talking about our spiritual death. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that when we believe in Jesus, when we've turned away from our sin, when we've trusted in Christ for our salvation, 
We have a relationship with him and we identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection so that our old self, our old way of life died and we've been resurrected to new life with Christ. It's amazing. Our old self is dead. And that's our first reason. Our old self is dead. And the logic is quite simple. If our old self is dead, then why would we turn, return to our old way of life? After we were rescued from slavery to sin, why would we go back to the very thing that killed us? After Harriet Tubman rescued family and friends from the hand of slavery and they crossed the Mason-Dixon line, why would they go back to the plantations and submit themselves to the same yoke of slavery that they'd been under? Why would the Israelites, after being rescued from the hand of the Egyptians and brought into the promised land, experiencing the goodness of freedom, why would they want to go back to Egypt? It's the same logic for us. When our old self has died, why would we want to go back and submit ourselves to an inferior kingdom, one that brought death and destruction, because sin and the kingdom of the world will destroy us. As the saying goes, either you're killing sin or sin is killing you. There's not an in-between. And even if sin tastes good initially, it's going to cause death and destruction in our life. Now, what Paul is saying in verse 3, he's not saying that sin and temptation are gone. But he's saying something else. That when we were filled with the Spirit, our eyes were opened to the destructive nature of sin. We can see sin for what it is. And even more than that, we've been set free from the power of sin in our life. Yes, it still tempts us. Yes, the desires are still there. But we don't, it doesn't have power over us anymore. We can never believe the lie that sin has power over us, that we must give in to temptation. We have resurrection power in us, enabling us, empowering us to say no to sin. So our old self is dead. And then Paul continues and says our new life, our new self is hidden with Christ. The word hidden is strange. It makes it sound like Paul is sending us out on some eternal spiritual scavenger hunt to find this eternal inheritance. But that's not at all how he's using the word hidden. Remember back in these times when someone had something valuable, they would actually go to their backyard, they would dig a hole, they'd put the valuable in the hole and then cover it up. That was their bank, right? For you and I, probably not the most secure way to keep something safe. We put in a safe in our house, we take it to the bank, maybe we leave it in our parents' basement, I'm not sure. What Paul is saying is that our new life is secure. It's safe. It's protected. That's our second why, right? Our new life is secure. It's safe. It's protected. We have a treasure that's hidden with Jesus, and Jesus tells us that moth and rust can't destroy it, that thieves can't break in and steal it. It's a treasure that's guaranteed but what's the nature of this treasure? What is it like? What is it? When Paul answers that question in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. <laughs> it's so simple, but it's so cool. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus himself is our treasure. When we have a relationship with Jesus, we have the hope of someday being reunited with him. That's our third why. Jesus himself is our treasure. And someday in eternity, the unseen will be seen. The one who we've loved, though we've never seen, will be revealed. 
We're going to live in perfect relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. This earth is not our final destination. It's not our final home. And God has promised us that when Jesus appears, we'll be with him. And he'll bring his, his kingdom once and for all. And the pain, the sorrow, the struggle, the struggle, the trials of this life are going to be over. And all things will be new. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. It's kind of an interesting concept, isn't it? Loving someone that we've never seen. It might be less foreign to us than we actually realize. I'll use the word love loosely, but think of how we might feel towards a celebrity, someone that we follow on social media. Maybe we know stats about their life and where they live, where they work, what their dog's name is, right? We might really appreciate them. I have a profound respect and appreciation for Christian Yelich as an athlete. But does he have any idea who I am? No. And frankly, he doesn't care. Our relationship with a celebrity is a one-way street. That is not how it works with Jesus. Our love for Jesus stems from his love for us. We love because he first loved us. So much so that he went to the cross and gave up his very life so that we could have a relationship with him. So how do we love someone we've never seen? <laughs> because nobody's ever loved us like Jesus. And there's a day coming when we will finally see him face to face. And that's going to be the best reunion of our life. That's going to be better <laughs> than the feeling of a new house or a new puppy. It's going to be better than landing your dream job, the feeling on your wedding day. Peter told us the joy we're going to experience on that day is inexpressible and filled with glory. On that day, there's going to be nothing better than seeing Jesus. And think about how we might apply this to that mind, heart, and life progression. Jesus himself, eternity with Jesus, is our North Star, isn't it? So we need to be intentional on thinking on the day when we'll be with Christ. Maybe it means memorizing a passage like Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and thinking on the day we'll be with Christ. Maybe it means having conversations with one another, reminding each other that Jesus is coming back, that someday we'll be with him. Maybe it means taking a step back in the midst of the busyness and the craziness of life and remembering that someday we'll be with Jesus. You think of it this way as we close. <laughs> this past week, uh, Hannah and I and Matthias had an opportunity to do some hiking. And there's this one hike that we did. It was in this river filled with rocks and there's water flowing and there were canyons, these huge cliffs on either side. It was stunning. But as I've told you before, when it comes to walking, not my greatest gift. So I was very focused on the next step in front of me so that I wouldn't fall into the ice cold water and look like a complete idiot, right? But while I was so focused on the next step, I actually missed all kinds of beauty that was around me because I was too focused on 
that next step. And I realized in that moment, it kind of had some spiritual parallels in my life because I just needed to step back, stop moving, and look up. And I wonder how often we need to do that in our life. How often do we need to stop moving, stop scheduling, stop stressing, stop scrolling, and look up and ask a very simple question. Is what I'm doing right now going to matter in eternity? And I know that if I ask myself that question just a couple more times a day, I think there might be some things that would change in my life. Actually, I know there might be some things that would change in my life. As the old saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. My prayer for us is that we're a young adult family that is so centered, so excited for eternity with Christ, that even as the world around us is spinning out of control, that our hope is secure. Because someday we will be with Jesus and nothing will be better than that. Let's pray. Father, teach us, incline our hearts to long for the day that we might be with Christ in eternity. And may the thought of that day reorient our desires today. May we be intentional and careful this week, even on what we fill our minds with, knowing that you want to shape our desires to look more like Christ. By your Spirit, work in our hearts and transform us to look more like Jesus and to desire the day when we'll be with him. So as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, I ask that you might be with us, that these conversations might bring honor and glory to you, that we can be open and trusting with one another, and that this can be a time of growth together. In Jesus' name, amen.